This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight, Heather Kennedy, a motivational speaker, talks happiness, and I tell you about the best sex toys for 2020. We have a big focus on the brain tonight, anxiety, and I'm also talking about a new app called Rooted to help with your worry and perfectionism. Focusing on the brain still, we're talking with Dr. Koresh Alamadi of Elumind, a clinic that does brain health differently. Dr. Gurdi Parhar joins us to discuss the latest news in COVID-19 and also the vaccine. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. This is a subject that is of interest to many, many people. Um, I thought since we're going to be focusing a little bit on the brain a little bit later on in the program with a psychiatrist who hopefully will provide my diagnosis. Uh, (laughs) um, But this is is, uh, something that many, many people worry about. It is on the rise or it's seemingly on the rise. And that is the most common form of dementia, which is Alzheimer's disease. And I was very interested to see that there was a new study published in the Journal of Physiology that demonstrated, and and keep in mind, we have had absolutely minimal advancement. There are a couple of medications for patients with uh, dementia or the variant forms of of dementia, like um, posterior cortical atrophy or Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. The medications have significant side effects, but there really hasn't been tremendous progress in treatment of Alzheimer's disease. And it can really uh, tremendously alter a person's life or their loved one's lives as well. So a new study published in the Journal of Physiology demonstrated that misfolded protein buildup in your gut might contribute to the development of Alzheimer-like symptoms in mice. So this is obviously very early research, but it may suggest a new treatment approach for Alzheimer's disease that would target the gut before symptoms of cognitive deficits appear. And those cognitive deficits happen in terms of memory, um, in terms of anxiety, which are also going to be talking about shortly on the program um, and and actually orientation. Um, so there are a number of symptoms of Alzheimer's disease that really can cut a person's quality of life short uh, very rapidly. Um, the proteins that were found in the gut, uh, which is a window to uh, this world, suggests that environmental factors might be contributing to those cognitive deficits that we see in Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia. Um, and so people lose, you know, they, they have visual issues oftentimes, especially with posterior cortical atrophy. They have memory issues. They may have irritability and anger. And so it can affect uh, the brain in so many different ways. Um, this misfolded protein, which is what it was referred to in this article, um, is called the beta amyloid. And you probably heard that when talking about Alzheimer's disease, or if you've read anything about it or heard anything about it, um, when this was injected into the guts of mice and traveled to the gut brain, which is actually the nervous system in our guts and also to the brain. And so if some of that beta amyloid buildup in the central nervous system, in other words, the spinal column or the spinal cord and the brain is originating from outside of the brain, your peripheral nervous system, it reduces the amount that makes it to the brain and traps the protein Um, And that may actually delay the onset. This is what they're thinking of Alzheimer's disease. And so because they're thinking it's maybe environmental um, issues that are contributing to this, you know, it may be a case. I'm not 100% sure on this, but for organic vegetables, a lot of people during this pandemic have started a vegetable garden. And um, so, you know, it's it's pretty organic um, then. Um, So this type of treatment, though, where we're reducing the amount of the beta amyloid um, that builds up and then actually gets to the brain would actually begin before any signs of dementia appear in a patient. And so I thought this was very interesting research. I think it's early on. Um, The concept is similar to the transport of misfolded proteins from the gut, such as those that are responsible for mad cow disease. So if this is the case, a similar process may actually begin in humans many years 
years ahead of those classic hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease uh, that include memory loss as well. And so some of those prevention strategies would actually need to start a whole lot earlier than they are now. They're actually saying that Alzheimer's disease is a midlife disease. And when the early onset is considered kind of, you know, late 50s, 60s, but, but oftentimes when family members of patients with Alzheimer's disease or early onset Alzheimer's disease, they will actually say, you know, my father, my mother had these symptoms 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. So um, there's some research actually suggests that this is actually a midlife disease, Alzheimer's, but it just progresses as time goes on. So it's certainly something that I'm very interested in and it relates to quality of life. It relates to relationships and it's about time that we found uh, a cure for Alzheimer's disease or something to actually uh, mitigate the symptoms or, or delay the onset of it. Get that occasional worry or full-blown panic disorders. Do you suffer from perfectionism? Because although uh, we may bow to that in society, that can cause tremendous problems in people's lives. What about social anxieties, phobias? All of these may be something known as anxiety, the number one mental illness pretty much around the world. And joining me on the line is the founder of a fabulous new app called Rooted, and her name is Anya, and this app is going to help you with your anxieties. Good evening, Anya. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, thank you for joining us. It's a fabulous app. I've already recommended it as soon as I found out about it, which I think was the middle of last week. I have recommended it to so many people. Oh, that's great. Thank you. It's it's fantastic. Um, and in today's world, especially with the pandemic, um, people do need something on their phones. So this isn't a free app um, on their phones. So tell me, um, why did you decide to create this app? I was in my last year of university when panic attacks first struck me, and I didn't really understand what they were until they happened. I was one of those people that thought that it was just people that stressed too much. Um, But it was actually a really difficult time. Um, And so I reached to my phone to find something to navigate that time. I was far away from home, no family doctor, uh, on student loans, so limited kind of financial resources to look for help. And at that time, unfortunately, there were really no apps. So as soon as I started learning the different techniques that were really helpful, speaking to therapists and clinical psychologists, I combined that knowledge with my love for graphic design. And that's how Rooted came to be. So it was basically you you created the treatment that you needed yourself. Yeah, definitely. One of those uh, scratching your own itch situations. Exactly. Yeah. And so what were yeah. the panic attacks like for you? What, what, did you? what did it feel like for those who have never suffered a panic attack? What, what is it exactly? Uh, palpitations, uh, heat flashes, increased kind of intrusive thoughts, really, really low confidence, um, really rapid heart beating, sometimes blurred vision. Uh, There's a lot of physical effects combined with the negative thoughts that really made it a really frightening situation. Sometimes wondering, like, am I actually having a heart attack right now? Yeah. I've heard people say that. I I didn't actually realize about Mm -hmm. the intrusive thoughts and and panic attacks. Panic attacks, as I understand it, come, they come and go. So they may just appear, you know, all of a sudden you're standing in line, perhaps uh, at the grocery store and you may have a panic attack. Is it, is it something like that? Or is it usually, is there a precursor? Uh, It's often situational. Yes. So like that. So it could be standing in line. And that doesn't mean that you can no longer stand in lines. It just means we need to figure out why, what about that situation triggered that in you? Okay. So it's, it actually can be related to whatever situation you're in, even though it may not be a dangerous uh, situation, but you may perceive it as such. Yes. It could be the standing in line reminds you maybe it was a scent that you had just smelled or something that reminds you of the past situation that you um, might want to figure out or speak to somebody about. Mm-hmm. I'm not a therapist myself, but I just through working with therapists and reading the literature on this. Right. And, you know, worry is another big one. And I, I deal with that in my mm-hmm. clinical practice repeatedly because so many people feel that if they worry, they're actually doing something. But the only thing they're doing is that I can see is they're harming themselves. 
Um, yeah, a lot of anxiety is based on worrying about something that hasn't yet happened. And you really can't fix a situation until it's happened and you have to deal with the situation. So in that sense, worrying is rather futile. It's just really hard uh, to learn and practice that. Exactly. And then there's like something I strive for is to be a perfectionist. I'm so far from it. But I I have to say I have a little perfectionism envy for those people who are, but I know people suffer who actually live with perfectionism. Uh, To me, it looks like a great thing that one would have. I mean, I feel like I have a high standard, but, but perfectionists actually have a very tough time in life. Yeah, we're really affected by the way we speak to ourselves. And there's actually a chapter on that in the Rooted app in the long-term lessons as to how we should kind of lighten up a bit and kind of be a bit more easy on ourselves because that does produce a lot of stress. And and oftentimes perfectionism is a a physical thing where everything is in perfect order. The house may be perfectly clean. The kids always look amazing. I mean, but they're constantly striving because perfectionism doesn't actually exist, does it? Yeah, I'd say it's quite subjective. Yeah. Right. And nobody's perfect. And yeah, I I think once we accept that nobody is perfect, um, you know, it's, it's also, you know, it's just something that you, one cannot attain, even though it might be kind of nice. Um, I have a caller on the line, uh, Dale from Calgary. Hello, Dale. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Um, I just, I heard you mention Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Is it the same as Magellan's disease? I do not. I, I honestly do not know. <laughs> um, Alzheimer's disease and Magellan's disease. No idea myself. Yeah, I can check that out for you and get back to you. Um, oh. But yeah, I, I don't. Um, I haven't heard that one before. We're just talking about anxiety right now, though, and and so now my heart is racing a little bit. Uh, <laughs> anyway, thanks for the call, Dale. Um, so we're getting back to your, your app. Um, so the other thing is, you know, that, that worry that, you know, people go very rapidly from a place of happiness. And I had a patient who was very, very happy and, and then a relationship didn't work out and it was a very brief relationship. And also, um, the, you know, about 20% of the brief relationship was good. And she kept wanting to go back to that. And she just spiraled downward very rapidly. And so this is what happens. It's that self-talk that, you're, that you were talking about that can have such mm-hmm. a negative impact on quality of life. Yeah, definitely. And, and so how does the app work? Uh, the app has a number of different lessons, including lessons to understand what anxiety is, what happens in your body, much like me in that when it first happened to me, I had no idea what those sensations were. And I was quick to think, oh my gosh, is this a heart attack? the app explains what all of those sensations are and how we experience them. And that's kind of the first step to kind of calming ourselves around those sensations and familiarizing ourselves with them. There are lessons on what to do in the short term. So thinking about diet, uh, you know, eating things like alkaline foods and thinking about whole foods and exercise, things that we can do in the short term to really improve things. And then there's the long-term lessons and those are focused on sleeping properly again and meditation and like we mentioned, the way we speak about ourselves to ourselves. There are also some tools, um, some active tools to work with as well, including a breathing tool. And that's in order to, to practice deep breathing daily. Uh, anxious people are often shallow breathers. And so practicing deep breathing can really help you in those moments where you're feeling anxious. You're more easily able to call on it if you practice it when you're not anxious. There's also a visualization tool which is an active meditation tool with body scans and actual visualizations, picturing yourself somewhere lovely uh, and getting into that calm headspace before you open your eyes again. And there's an actual panic attack button that walks you through a panic attack. So if you're in the middle of a panic attack, and this is, I've got to say, one of the user's most praised features in the app because it's so crucial to kind of feel better in those really high panicked moments. And then there's also a journal tool. And that journal tool really celebrates your strengths. Uh, a lot of time with anxious thoughts, we think of what we could have done better that day. But what the journal tool asks you is to name things that you've done really well today. And they can be as little as, you know, prepped an amazing meal or did a great job in a meeting um, or do a big thing, like doing a great job in the meeting. And all of those things really count towards building up that confidence again. And the journal tool also lists 
when you have panic attacks, so you're easily able to talk about it with your therapist. You're able to start noticing patterns around it. They're no longer as random as they might feel. Wow, that's awesome. It sounds amazing. And where can people get this app, Rooted? You can find it on the app stores or the Google Play store. So it's both on iOS, Apple phones, and Android phones. Fantastic. And it's R-O-O-T-D, correct? Yes. 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 It's rooted, like being rooted in the ground. You know, those big oak trees, they may go through big storms, but they don't, they very rarely actually topple over. They've got those roots that keep them in the ground. That's where the idea of the name came from. Um, but it's no E. So R-O-T-D. Thank you so much, Anya. I really appreciate your sharing the information and congratulations to you on this. Yes. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. My guest is a psychiatrist and founder at Elumind Centers for Brain Excellence. It's a private outpatient healthcare center specializing in optimizing brain functions through various neurotherapeutic modalities. Dr. Koresh Adelati joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Adelati. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Excellent. Let's dive right into it. <laughs> in the interest of time, how important is brain health for, to quality of life? Well, to answer uh, this question, uh, let's just examine what are the functions of the brain, Maureen. Uh, so if you think of the brain, what it does for us is it allows us to plan, to coordinate our actions. Uh, if you have a tiger lurking around the neighborhood, uh, we can evade it um, to find food. Uh, you know, all the basic necessities of life, Maureen, are, are dependent on our brains. Uh and uh, also we can feel and think uh, abstract through our brain. So really uh, extremely important. Um, the brain health should be at the top of our list in terms of importance. And we forget about the brain and keeping the brain healthy, don't we? Well, sometimes we get busy, you know, life catches up with us. Or sometimes uh, we get caught up with... Uh, uh, a pandemic. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> we forget uh, the very basics of uh, our physiological function, our body and our brain, uh, and to look after it. So, yeah, absolutely. What are some of the things that, that hinder or harm your brain health, one's brain health? Well, um, to start out with it, stress is one of the biggest uh, harmers of the brain, if you want to call it that, Uh and sometimes uh, food that is uh, not really helpful for the brain. Um, any of those can affect the brain in very negative ways. Uh, we know through a lot of studies that uh, our brain is, uh, has that inherent ability to cleanse itself uh, when we allow it. And when we uh, take away uh, that inherent ability because of uh, some basic uh, rules that we don't follow, uh, then the brain stops to really function at its optimal level. Um, So nutrition would be one, sleep would be one, and obviously uh, stress is the one thing that a lot of folks these days uh, experience. Right. And and how about substances? Uh, When people are stressed, they may actually turn to a substance. Well, uh, yes, alcohol would be one of the biggest... uh, culprits here. Um, we know that uh, in, in addition to causing harm to others when somebody's drunk and, <laughs> you know, to drive, they choose to drive, it can also affect the person in the long run. Um, even as, as little as uh, a weekend binge drinking can start damaging the brain. Um, we know that uh, people's memories and uh, concentration, ability to uh, have better judgment is all affected. And uh, we see that in the long run, uh, many of these uh, vital parts of the brain, such as the frontal part of the brain, uh, memory networks, and um, also the motor functions, so you know, people's ability to walk in a coordinated way, are affected. Exactly. And what about trauma, uh, childhood trauma? Well, we know that uh, childhood trauma is really dependent. I mean, let me just define one thing quickly, because I think for the sake of the audience, understanding what trauma is really um, uh, entailing. So uh, trauma very much depends on the resilience of an individual. And what we define as resilience is the ability to 
experience an event mm-hmm. or um, you know see something, hear something, and be able to process it with their capacity. And of course, children have not really developed that uh, capacity, that resilience. And so uh, it would affect their brain development very negatively. In fact, uh, we know that brain development is uh, halted to some degree when a child uh, experiences uh, trauma such as uh, abuse or neglect. So uh, it is a very severe uh, form of brain, uh, if you want to call it even damage, uh, I I would put that in that category. Very interesting. Now, I often talk to patients in my clinical practice about trauma that they have been through, and even if it's some experience that they've had or something with a relationship, and and how important it is to process that trauma. And so, in other words, to to grieve it, to understand it, to uh, look at your role in it uh, as an adult. Of course, a child never has a role in any type of sexual abuse, but but you know, yeah. being attracted to a particular type of person, um, you know, a particular type of individual that has particular, like the bad boy kind of scene or whatever, yeah. you know, um, scenario. And so always being attracted to that type. Or um, So if they've had a negative experience, how important is that for them to process it, or to go through the motions? Well, one of the things that uh, trauma does, it, it takes away um, a lot of our abilities to go through life um, and, and really aware of uh, our experiences. And a lot of times, adults, like you pointed out, get attracted to the wrong person uh, because they have uh, that um, that trauma in their childhood. Uh, a lot of it, it may be um, due to attachment issues. And so processing it with a professional um, who can facilitate uh, the understanding of the event and really uh, get them past that event by building resilience for that individual um, really enhances the quality of uh, the life of that individual. Exactly. And you're trying to do exactly that at LUMind. So tell me yeah. why you established LUMind Center for Brain Excellence. Well, one of the things that uh, Maureen looked at was how to approach the brain from different angles, right? Uh, we wanted to um, make sure that people coming for For example, medications or talk therapy, some people know it also as counseling, Um, they are also getting some missing components that would enhance these effects, the effects of these therapies. So if somebody, for example, uh, comes in for, um, uh, let's say, just just a very simple medication that I was prescribing, uh, a good nutrition uh, that we do here at Illumine would mean less inflammation uh, in the gut, and therefore it would allow them to really um, absorb some of these medications better. Or, for example, if somebody is coming for uh, for uh, therapy for their trauma, if they fix their sleep uh, a little bit better, uh, you know, they would not be dozing off during the the therapy session. So the, the quality of these therapies would be enhanced, first of all. And second of all, some of these therapies that we are bringing through Elomind, these are therapies that uh, can on their own uh, sometimes help people develop uh, better resilience as well as better overall mental and brain health. Exactly. And oftentimes, like I, I see this in my clinical practice too, patients will come in, I don't prescribe, but um, but they will say to me, can you recommend that I, you know, that he just gives me a pill, the doctor that I work with? <laughs> can, you just, uh, can you just recommend the surgery, please? <laughs> can you tell him I want the surgery? <laughs> um, but some people want the quick fix, if you will. Yeah. And so it sounds to me like the, that which you have put around uh, perhaps medication or talk therapy is, are those things that uh, may take a little bit longer, but are incredibly worthwhile to do, to implement in your life. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, there, there is no sim- simple answer for anything in life. And I think to look at it from uh, multiple angles, and as long as it's evidence-based, I mean, this is what we practice here. We want to make sure that things that we provide the public have that evidence behind them. But if people come in from... Um, different angles to their problems and really approach them with uh, an open mind to help them uh, bring all these therapies together. 
a lot of times what I see is that uh, the results are really, really enhanced, much better than you know, just doing one or uh, another type of therapy on their own. Okay. You mentioned nutrition and psychology, talk therapy. What about neurofeedback or, or biofeedback? How can those modalities help patients uh, to improve their quality of life with their mental health issues? So one of the things that neurofeedback does, in fact, is it allows um, through a principle called operant conditioning, and that's just reward-based or, um, you know, punishment-based, you want to call it, or positive or negative reinforcement, it will, it will allow the brain to self-regulate. It will allow uh, some of the networks in the brain to optimize uh, the functions that uh, they have. And uh, what we see is with neurofeedback as a therapy, it can help um, really uh, the brain to get some of these uh, pathways uh, Reestablish sometimes. Sometimes it allows these pathways to be cleared of the symptoms. Uh, so really, it's a tool to uh, optimize uh, brain health more than uh, you know uh, some other therapies such as counseling, which would be considered. Uh, uh, therapy for the mind, basically. Right. Um, I know you deal with a lot of depression and anxiety at the clinic and other mental health issues. Um, are there some people who just can't be helped, maybe like a personality disorder? I had a patient in my clinical practice recently. She described her boyfriend, who I think she knew for about a year and a half, as volatile, controlling, um, childlike. Uh, his mother was very much involved in his daily life, phoning every single day. <laughs> and uh, obviously the relationship did not last. Uh, and th- are there some people that uh, cannot be helped? And is that because they either have a personality disorder or they just don't want to be helped? So how much is self-motivation? And, and even people with personality, I know there's a lot of questions here, but if you have a personality disorder, you know, can you actually seek help or desire help? So, Maureen, you, I mean, you must be dealing with this yourself sometimes in your practice, but absolutely, uh, every person can be helped. I mean, the level is very different. Uh, some people more, some people less. But it comes down to one single factor, and that is motivation. Um, I mean, I don't know how many times I've had a uh, wife or a husband dragged to therapy. Uh, <laughs> you know, the therapy went south very quickly. Right. Just because the person didn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. Um and sometimes, um, you know, people withdrawing uh, uh, their, from their relationship and, and kind of uh, allowing that person to feel a bit of pain would create that leverage for them to understand really uh, that there's, you know, there's something going on. There's something wrong that uh, others around are noticing. Uh, so that motivation has to come from the person getting the therapy. Um, but if, if they're willing to, any person can be helped. Even somebody with a personality disorder? Oh, absolutely. Really? Absolutely. Yes. Like absolutely. borderline personality disorder or socio, you know, sociopaths or narcissists? Well, they're, they're all caused by, uh, first of all, childhood attachment issues uh, generally, and also brain chemistry. I mean, we know uh, from studies that some of these personality disorders, there is actual um, chemical uh, difficulties that they have in the brain. And so if we can um, offer the right therapy for that uh, personality disorder type, uh, then definitely we can uh, uh, bring that person a little bit closer to being uh, uh, mentally uh, sound. And so when you talk about the childhood attachment issues, is that that maybe their one of their parents was missing or, you know, not involved in their lives or, you know, left for a while or left them at a young age and never returned? Uh, that All of those and uh, plus sometimes, you know, a, a very chaotic home environment. Okay. Um, I mean, and, you know, we, we know that, uh, for example, borderline personality disorder, you mentioned that. Is caused by a borderline environment. Like it, it's really um, a lot of uh, chaos in yeah. that individual. And so, uh, you know, creating or recreating rather sometimes um, a, um, a more uh, holistic view of their, their world for them. Uh, you know, for, the, for example, borderline personality, we look at mindfulness as a tool, uh, would allow that person to. Uh, 
gain re- you know, emotional regulation or uh, in, in this case, emotional regulation, but in many cases, uh, sometimes even um, cognitive issues that they have in their thinking. Right. I, I could talk to you all night, obviously, but I can't. We're up against the clock, <laughs> unfortunately, Dr. Edelotti. How can people learn more about Mind? Well, they can uh, go to our website, uh, illumind.com. Um, that's one way of uh, going and gaining some information. And, of course, they can pick up the phone and call us. We're more than happy to uh, you know, talk to them and see what their issues are. Generally, we provide a um, uh, free uh, phone uh, screening consultation, I should call it, to find out, you know, if we can offer them any services that could help their brain health and mental health. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We'll have to get you back Thanks talk a little bit more. Show, oh, you're very welcome. And I hate to start out with bad news, but uh, Nick Cordero, the Tony Award winning Canadian actor, died today after months battling COVID-19. Our hearts certainly go out to his lovely wife, Amanda Klutz Larson, who chronicled his battle with COVID-19 since the beginning of April on Instagram. He lost his leg to this disease. I mean, it's just so horrific. And if anybody thinks that this is over or it's only going to be, you know, 10,000 deaths or or whatever, um, you know, I, I don't think the loved one of anybody who has passed away from this dreadful disease um, would agree with you on any level. Anyway, she is in our thoughts and prayers tonight. He is a clinical professor at the University of British Columbia, a medical doctor who is dealing every day on the front lines of COVID-19. He is the one and only Dr. Gurdeep Parhar, and he joins me on the line for Nurse Talk. (laughs) Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Good morning, Maureen, and and I agree with you. I think the COVID-19 pandemic has actually touched so many people's lives. I've yet to talk to someone who hasn't heard of someone or close to someone. or um, So it, it, it is quite tragic in the number of stories um, across the world, really. Yeah. It is heartbreaking. I feel so badly for uh, Nick Cordero's wife because, you know, she brought us all into her heart, um, chronicling his disease. And he was in the ICU and ventilated, and then he lost his leg. He had the microembolism. And uh, anyway, it, it is just so heartbreaking. And, you know, I have to say, you know, each week as I drive down to the studio, um, I, you know, I've noticed the traffic and, you know, kind of the first time, well, I tried to do it from home and that didn't work. <laughs> and so I flew in here on that, on that same day and there was not a car on the road. And then each week there have been more cars, you know, a few more cars, a few more cars. Tonight looked like any other day, any other year on a Sunday um, in in this country as you're driving in one of the major cities. And, and also as I walked to the studio from the parking space, um, you know, nobody was wearing, I think I saw one person wearing a mask. And so we're getting a little lax, but we shouldn't given what's going on in Calgary, Dr. Parhar. Yeah, so, um, you know, speaking about our um, friends and contacts and community members across the across the country, I, Marina, I know you have a lot of contacts and friends and colleagues in Alberta. I did, I did my training in Calgary, my medical training, so my heart's still there as well. But, but Alberta's been facing some interesting challenges. You know, um, the stampede um, has had to obviously scale back and change, and much like we did in the PNE in, in Vancouver, there's drive-through activities like breakfast. Um, the other other thing to keep in mind is we're all really nervous about the impact on our Indigenous communities and unfortunately the, the Siksika First Nation, which is um, just outside of Calgary, just uh, one hour east of Calgary, has had to put in a curfew because um, there's about 317 people that um, are being investigated for possibly having COVID-19. So we really do worry about Indigenous communities and the extra vulnerability there because of all, all, all the other um, risk factors associated with chronic disease and, and, and other challenges in, in, our, in our Indigenous communities. Um, one of the big news items, I guess, specifically from Calgary was that um, a, a particular community was put on what in Alberta they call a COVID-19 watch. And all that really means is that there's extra attention being given to a particular area. And um, this was a, a building um, called Verve. Um, our, our listeners in Alberta would know this area. It's in Calgary's East Village. And really what happened was in a very, um, a very tight area, and 
this particular condo building, there is, at last report, I think 45 cases. Um, luckily, um, 11 of them have already recovered. Three are in hospital and 34 are still active. But Maureen, it goes to tell you that um, even in, in Alberta that isn't densely populated, where people are generally quite spread apart over a large province like Alberta, when you have these pockets, people are quite vulnerable and they're living in close proximity to one another. Um, and, you know, our hearts go to everybody who's um, stressed. And I think in the in the meat plant that where there was the big story earlier in the year, um, you know, that, that had devastation in itself. But but certainly other parts of Alberta have not been um, to- totally um, immune and, and, and protected from what's going on with, with the COVID-19. That's right. And if you have a, uh, would like to contribute to the program, the number to call, or if you have a question for the fine doctor, the number to call is one 877 That's one 877 You can call or text or email nursetalk at hotmail.com. Um, on Friday, Alberta reported 57 new cases of COVID-19. That, that's a, a striking number. Um, and, you know, it's certainly not as, as flat as some of the other provinces have, um, although no additional deaths. We, we need to remain vigilant with this virus still, don't we? Absolutely. And you're seeing those kind of variations even across the country. You know, I think in Canada, um, Quebec and Ontario were really the big hotspots in terms of the numbers of cases. But we do need to stay vigilant. And there's so many different factors at play, Maureen. And, you know, BC is often touted as having a lot of successes. Some of them are quite intentional and people behaved and leaders like Dr. Henry led us. But the other ones were just by chance and, and who, what the kind of living and working environments that we have are in different provinces. So it can be quite diverse. Right. Now, British Columbia, as I understand it, was on a trajectory toward New York and Italy, um, relatively speaking. Uh, and, and initially, they, they weren't as uh, firm on, you know, shutting things down. It, was, it actually took Whistler to shut, you know, the ski mountains shut themselves down, basically. And, and the restaurants initially were, were packed. Um, and, and certainly we've had uh, tragedy in the long-term care facilities, but, but the, the provincial health officer there has, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, has actually taken um, quite an extraordinary lead on it and, uh, and managed to turn this around. So for people who say, oh, BC is, you know, all nature or whatever, for whatever reason, no, we were actually headed in, in a, you know, down a very bad path. Now, another... Go ahead. Sorry, just, sorry, just to add, Maureen, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say that but based on what you said about people now and the traffic out and the beaches full and the parks full, the other side of this is that until a vaccine's out, this can flip on a dime, mm-hmm. right? So it won't take very many cases to turn the tide in a negative way. So I agree with you. I, I think we can't be complacent and, and we can't let our guard down. That's right. And, and the beaches, let me tell you, they were packed today. Um, lately, it... it, it Initially, it was people over the age of 65 and over the age of 80 um, that largely accounted for the deaths. But now we're seeing people under the age of 40. They have begun to overtake the majority of new cases of COVID-19 in many places in America and many provinces in Canada. And and is this because uh, they're just snubbing their noses at, at these guidelines? Is it because they're gathering, they, they're fed up with staying at home, the weather's nicer? To what do you attribute this? So you're absolutely right, and and sticking to our theme of Alberta tonight, um, you know, Alberta's now the number of the majority of new cases are actually people under the age of 40. So quite different than we were seeing before. Now, fortunately, the majority of those cases, not all of them, are not becoming serious and perhaps not ending up up in the ICU. But that doesn't mean that a percentage of them don't. And I want to warn people that are young that you know they aren't um, they aren't in, um, they are vulnerable as well. Um, Maureen, I think there's probably a lot of factors at play. I, um, my suspicion is that a lot of older people and people with chronic diseases who tend to also be a little older, I've probably been really good about um, staying physically distant, um, whereas the younger people probably are more active. And, and in a way, you know, when we talk a lot about medicine and we talk a lot about the science and the research, but in a way, since March, this has been a huge social ex- experiment as well. How long can you keep an entire population in their basement and can keep them to, limited to a number of four people and tell them not to hug and kiss and tell them, you know, and so at some point, you're right, I think as much as, you know, you're grumbling about people on the beaches and the port parks and the and, and in the cars and, and where you have the right to grumble, um, but, the, but the flip, but the, but the other part of it is how long can we keep people, you know, um, not not doing their normal activities and, and I think we may, may be close to hitting that threshold, right? 
I, I agree. I think we are at that at that threshold, and not everybody is fortunate enough to live in homes that are large enough to accommodate, you know, a, a number of people. Um, a lot of people don't live uh, close to parks and and nature, um, you know, and uh, so that they can enjoy outdoor activities because it's the virus is actually less. Um, you know, less intense outdoors and you're less likely to actually catch um, COVID-19 by being outdoors. It seems like people going into clubs and uh, going into restaurants, um, you know, they have a much greater risk. But there's also some evidence that there's a new form of the coronavirus um, that is actually, um, it's a new mutation that the virus is more likely to infect people, but does not seem to make them any sicker than earlier variations. How concerning should we, how concerned should we be that there are mutations of this virus coming our way? Yeah, so as people know, even with the flu, flu virus, um, influenza, we know that um, the reason we get the flu every year or you get it every couple of years is because once you get it, you're not protected from getting a different type the next time around. And the same sort of logic. So if you ask what I'm worried about, I'm worried about if, if and when the vaccine's available, will it cover the various um, mutations? Remember, every time the virus um, uh, um, makes copies of itself, there's a little mutation and little mutations that happen, but we think those aren't significant. That that, that the same vaccine should probably work on them. Now, if there's a significant mutation, that, that raises a different issue. Now, if the, if the mutated um, COVID-19 that's now come from Europe into North America, as you pointed out, Maureen, um, is causing the same or less serious of an infection, then, then maybe alarm bells wouldn't go off. Where I would be most concerned is if and when a vaccine is approved, will it cover the various types? I have Eric on the line. He's a sexual health RN. He's going to join me in a minute. He wants to tell you a little thing about deodorant. So I decided that I'm going to tell you what the best sex toys are (laughs) before we dive into deodorant. (laughs) Anyway, the best sex toys. And I was delighted to see. So Eric, hang on the line for me, if you don't mind. Um, I was delighted to see that my favorite um, uh, uh, sex toy uh, is on, has made the list. Um, and so it, this isn't in any particular order. These are different types of sex toys. So the best rabbit vibrator is the Kama Sutra Lavani vibrator. The best clitoris vibrator is the womanizer. It is awesome. It's amazing. It is available on my website. I'm probably going to put these other things on my website too. Best couples vibrator, the Wee Vibe. Yes, that is fun. The number one uh, fantasy for women is to be lightly tied up. So why not pick up a set of the best handcuffs, the Unbound Cuffies? And then the best penile ring, Ahoy! penile ring for you. And then the best stroker is the Tenga. This is for you guys. The Tenga Flip Zero. I was actually sent one of those in the mail recently. (laughs) I really didn't know what it was. I haven't had time to actually check it out, but I did now. And so I know it's for men. And so I'll probably be giving that away in a few weeks time if I remember to bring it in because don't forget I am blonde. Um, The best anal plug is the B-Vibe anal training kit and education set. Always good to come with some education. And the best budget vibrator for those of you who may be unemployed right now. <laughs> Can't afford the number, the top vibrator for 2020, the Mod Vibe, M-A-U-D-E. And the best budget anal plugs are Satisfier plugs. So anyway, check those out if you like. I might be adding them to my website, MaureenMcGrath.com, but you can always get your womanizer there. We have reclaimed that word. It used to mean pain and now it means pleasure. All right. To talk a little bit about um, some pleasure with me is Eric. He is a sexual health RN and he joins me on the line. Good evening, Eric. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Good. Just before I start, I want to say it's a good thing I'm wearing antiperspirant because that just got me all hot and heavy listening to all the toys. (laughs) See, it was a perfect foreplay to your... Perfect. Um, Absolutely. I'm glad you're wearing antiperspirant, like the word I said, deodorant. Um, But you have a little PSA on deodorant, and this is going to actually help people uh, get maybe get... uh, get uh, down and dirty a little bit more frequently, would you say? I would say so, yes. Yeah. Okay. So I, I guess if I was to ask you uh, when you would think of people using deodorant, when do you think people use it most often? After a shower. <laughs> After a shower, right. Do you ever, like if you've been to a gym or a pool and you see people using deodorant after they work out? I, I have heard of that, yes. Yeah. I've seen so, it. So basically, uh, what most people don't know 
is that uh, by doing so, you're actually making the situation worse. And here is how. Uh, bacteria, as we know, like moist, dark areas. And that's exactly what our armpits are. But let's say you go to a workout and you are sweaty and then you take a, well, we'll call it a pit stick or a deodorant stick and you apply it under your armpits there, you're taking the bacteria and you're concealing it inside this moist, dark area under the lid. So then the next time you have a shower and you reapply that deodorant, you're just introducing like fresh bacteria to the armpit. And it's just so gross, right? (laughs) Yes. And what can happen is um, when people do that, you can get irritation and you can get a red ring on the outside or even the inside of your armpit. Um, and it, I mean, it can go away if you, if you wash it, it's not a bacterial infection so much as it can be an irritation. But my suggestion is, uh, you just do three things. You wash, dry, and then apply. Exactly. I would have thought that that would have been common sense, but apparently common sense isn't so common. No. Yeah, no, I see people like in their hockey bags and stuff like that to keep the exact same stick of deodorant and use it all throughout the day. They're like, hmm. I'm a little bit musky. I'll just reapply it. And it's like, no, you're making it worse. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. How to turn other people off. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. 101. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you for that hot tip. That was almost as hot as the top sex toys of 2020, but not quite. (laughs) Yeah. But I think it it will help um, people though. You know, like uh, hygiene is so important in terms of sexual attraction and chemistry. I agree. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, besides, you know, anyway, always, always look your best. Try to look your best. Anyway. And smell your best. And, and always smell your best. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Somebody gave me some hand cream the other day and it was just amazing. And I was like, oh my gosh, I am getting that. And it was a Chanel product and it was the, the size of, it looked like a sex toy actually, the, the package. And it was like $120. And I'm like, should I get it? Should I not? Should I? I shouldn't. <laughs> you know, we can just order so much off of Amazon these days, which is <laughs> my big pandemic issue. Um, so, but I keep thinking about that scent and it just smelled so good. And of course, scent is so the pheromones and, you know, it's so important in terms of, of sexual attraction and, and having great sex. Um, and it can be, just be a shampoo that somebody uses and it just matches with their, uh, body chemistry and, you know, and Ooh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I will say also sometimes during sex, it's normal or during arousal is that the body will release uh, those pheromones. So if you, if you get like an interesting smell uh, from sweating, it's not necessarily like uh, BO in the negative sense. It is actual like an attraction kind of thing happening. Exactly. Exactly. And so scent is so important. And oftentimes when people will, uh, you know, ask me in my clinical practice, you know, how do I know it's the right one? You know, and it's really, you know, and, and the focus being on physical attraction and chemistry and, and, you know, because people leave that out sometimes they marry for the money or for the job or for the family or the social status or the car. Um, but it's, they forget about the attraction and, uh, and I'll say, you know, if you want to be around them and you, you know, you want to smell them and you want to touch them and you, you know, you feel, uh, comfortable in their arms and, you know, in in their presence. Anyway, I have a, a call from John from British Columbia. Hello, John. Hi. How are you? Uh, not bad. Good. <laughs> uh, uh, I went to my new job, and after a couple of days, I, I went to walk, walk with a guy uh, doing renovation, and it was a small washroom, and he smelled so bad. <laughs> and, and, Sorry. And... And I, I had to do drywall. One guy, he was holding and I, I, I had to screw it. So I, I held my breath and I put a few screws and I came out. Then I said, excuse me, if you don't mind, uh, it's really bad. You have to do something. Uh, no, I said it nicely. I said, it's really bad. You have to do something about it. And uh, And he goes, I wonder why nobody wanted to work with me. Oh, wow. Yeah, nobody said, everybody was talking behind his back and nobody opened up. And uh, he, he was there for 10, 15 years and I, I was a new guy. It was my first week and I said, 
uh, you have to do something about it. And I said, don't mind my language, it's going to be good for you. And he really appreciated it. He said, thank you. Uh, And after that, he was fine. And uh, all these years, everybody was talking behind his back and nobody, uh, nobody opened up. Yeah, sometimes it's nice to, you know, to be straightforward and to be honest. And, and you yeah. were essentially helping him, and you did help him. Yeah, yeah and that... he appreciated it. I said, uh, it's really bad. You have to do something about it. And he appreciated it, and after that, he was fine. That's so but, great. Uh, yeah, sometimes people uh, are scared. They think oh, what the outcome going to be, but... Right. Somebody has to tell them. Yeah, and he reacted well, too. He didn't get defensive. A lot of people might get defensive. I know, I remember somebody, a patient of mine told me that at her job, people were saying, she thought they were bullying her, and she said, you know, they they um, talked about my scent, and they said that I smelled, and, and, you know, she actually did, you know, and so, but she got very defensive about that. But that was that was a great story, John. Thanks so much for the call. So way how you approach them. It is. It's the way you approach them. Absolutely. Say what you mean. Mean what you say. Don't say it mean. Okay, back to Eric. The sex are in there. Yeah, All right, I Eric. can add to that. There's, um, <laughs> that's a really good point that he has is some people don't know that they smell, and that is a, a process called habituation. So basically, uh, if you're around a certain stimulus long enough, you can habituate it, which means you become, uh, you ignore it. Like you just don't know it's there. So put it this way. If you notice that your armpits smell, that means that everyone else around you has noticed it well before you have. A long time ago. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing is that, you know, I mean, some people don't take a shower every single day, you know, right. and like, and, and it, you know, for me, it's waking up, you know, it's like, as soon as I wake up, I'm in the shower and it wakes me up. Right. Um, yeah. So I have a, a text message here so from, from, uh, same name, same name as the sex RN, Eric. So we need to wash or remove the top layer of the deodorant stick itself to get the bacteria off the stick. Great question. So what can happen is uh, if I use my deodorant stick, for instance, sometimes I will wipe it away on the inside of my shirt just because I'm like, hey, now it's gone. But the thing is, the bacteria could like if you press your stick all the way to the top the bacteria could be there. So I would say it is good hygiene practice if you're worried about it and you're applying it to a dirty pit is to just wipe it off after and it would reduce the amount of bacteria growth that would be on it. That's on the stick. I actually use a spray. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> for, you know, for that reason, I just never liked the, the sticks. Um, I know that it's not good for the ozone layer, so the environmentalists are going to be <laughs> um, going crazy, <laughs> but, uh, but it just, it's just more hygienic. And, you know, and I had noticed, like, I would wipe the top of that off and, you know, and, and I'm, I'm active, like, but to be honest with you, I really don't sweat that much. <laughs> I never sweat, to be honest. <laughs> um, so it's not that a problem. That is a luxury in life, my friend. <laughs> I know. I'm not. I'm not a sweater. I I, I like sweater weather, but I don't. <laughs> but I'm not a sweater. Um, you know, I go to the gym and I barely sweat. Who would have thought deodorant would have been such a sexy subject here um, right? tonight? But yeah, but it's really important, and people can actually get um, they so they can get underarm infections and and pain and and burning and that kind of thing from this type of use, right? Absolutely. And uh, another thing too is if deodorants, for instance, since we're on the topic, if you change brands, sometimes you can have an allergic reaction and it's very mild, but the more you use it, the worse it can get. And it will start off by excessive sweating in your armpits and it will be that red ring on the outside of where you applied it. And if you do get that, it's not because you're just like having an off day. Stop using it immediately and find a better brand. Right, right. And and some people can have allergic reactions to deodorant or, or antiperspirants, right? Yes. Um, caused by the propylene glycol. That's the chemical that's that right. gives that deodorant its shape. So you know that it's chemicals that's keeping, you know, keeping the deodorant stick in, in its form, right? Yeah, And also there's essential oils, which can be very um, harsh on a number of people, especially with sensitive skin. But and totally. to total, you know, full disclosure here, you know, I do use deodorant every day, but I don't even have to. <laughs> Humble brag. <laughs> it's so true. Like if I forget, it doesn't matter. There's no difference. But I invest in the product nonetheless. Anyway, <laughs> Eric, this was such a fun segment. Unfortunately, we're up against the clock, so we're going to have to get you back. 
happiness cannot be traveled to, consumed, purchased, or worn. Happiness is the spiritual experience of living every minute with love, grace, and gratitude. So how do we cultivate happiness? To answer this question, I've invited Heather Kennedy, a motivational speaker, to the Sunday Night Health Show, and she joins me on the line. Good evening, Heather. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm great now. I've been listening to your show, and I was listening to the last episode where I learned the word moist. <laughs> the worst that was a happy word in the, I loved it. In the dictionary. <laughs> so great. It is, I yes. Mean, really, this, and that's my first point, humor. I have a friend who makes me laugh every time I see her, even if we're crying, and I'm so grateful for her time, you know? Totally. There's nothing like You have to have laughter in your life every single day. Yeah. At least throughout yeah. the day as well, not just once. Yeah, to offset all the crying we do. <laughs> this is this is true. When life doesn't go our way and we think we're the only ones whose life hasn't gone the way we wanted it to, but that's not necessarily yeah. true. So uh, we may have lost our jobs. Uh, you know, we may have financial issues, you know, and it's been said money doesn't make you happy. It can be stressful. People can worry about where they're going to put their, how they're going to get the next meal on the table or how they're going to pay their rent. Um, Right. But how, you know, that in addition to being in a relationship, I have a patient who is like, I'm the only one who is not in a relationship. And I'm like, that is not true. And don't forget, there's so many people in relationships who are miserable. Yeah. (laughs) Like putting it in perspective. So how do we cultivate happiness? Well, if I could answer that, I would be a lot richer than I am today, Maureen. But I'll tell you what, (laughs) I do notice one thing. Gratitude is the answer to a lot of things. I notice when I'm really feeling down, I'll stop and pause and I'll make a note of gratitude just in my mind very quickly about what went well today. What did work today? Instead of making that long list of perceived threats and those anxiety provoking things that are, you know, driving us crazy, I make the list of, hey, what went right today? And, and you know, so many I walked people, down the street and I didn't trip. That's one. <laughs> exactly. It's the very simple things. My mother used to say, you know, I complained about my shoes until I saw a man who had no feet. You know, some Boom. people are, get so, um, you know, they're so co- consumed with themselves. You mm. know, it's very difficult for them to be grateful. And, they, and they, want, they expect to be grateful for, you know, winning. Well, I haven't won the lottery or I haven't, you know, gotten a new boat or I haven't, you know, I'm not right. going to be able to get this or buy that. But it's actually, as you say, walking down the street or, or the air that you breathe is... It's all perspective. Mm-hmm. For example, there's the, what's the, the story about the farmer's son? The old farmer, he'd worked for many years, and one day his horse goes missing, and people say, oh, such bad luck. You probably have heard this story, right? I can say it for I'm you. I'm a city a girl. I haven't heard it. Quick, go ahead. <laughs> okay. It's a Taoist story, an old farmer. He worked for many years. He had a horse who ran away. The neighbors all said, oh, that's such bad luck, sympathetically. And he said, maybe. The next morning, the horse returns, bringing the three other wild horses with him. And the people say, how wonderful, the neighbors say, you know. He's like, maybe. And the following day, his son tries to ride one of the untamed horses and was thrown and breaks his leg. Mm. The neighbors come back again. How terrible. This is awful misfortune. The farmer says, maybe. But the very next day, this end of the story, the military officials come by to the village to get the young man into the army. And seeing the son's leg is broken, he has passed by. The neighbors congratulated the farmer because guess what? Maybe that was good luck, you know? Right. As it turned out, he didn't have to go. And right. And the farmer's like, maybe, you know, and on it goes. Exactly. That is, that is so true. How about giving sincere thanks to others? When somebody does something yeah. to help you, they've gone above and beyond to make your day easier or, you know, how helpful is that in terms of cultivating happiness? I was, I'm a big fan of Cheryl Strait, and she has something that she used to do called Dear Sugar. And she says that day when those kids get on the bus and they hand you this, one of them tries to hand you a balloon and you think you're not worthy and you don't take the balloon. Well, guess what? Take the balloon and give thanks for the balloon. People love to do kind things for others. And by allowing them to do so, you can share in that gratitude. And we talked last week about Mudita, that sympathetic joy. Mm-hmm. We can always be grateful for everything, even if we're not personally experiencing it. Think about when you watch a child playing, having fun. That is also this moment where you can you can be really, really happy about that. Accept all your blessings and fortunes and, and yes, yeah, celebrate those. We are trained to perceive threats and to focus on what's wrong so that we can 
survive and always be better. We're always going somewhere. We have this almost neurotic anxiety within us to get to the next best thing and have that next thing. But that's not really happiness. It's all about just, you know, gathering things. And we know that's not the answer. Absolutely. Pleasure is not the answer either. It's not really the end. It's something deeper. It's something more. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.